Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac 1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills. I am a QAM volunteer. And you're going to hear a conversation now that I recorded recently with two QAM volunteers. One is Eric Cooper, who currently volunteers in the workshop area at the museum, working on restoring our F-27, our Fokker Friendship. Eric has a long history as a pilot, and you'll hear some of that in a moment. The other person in the room at the time was Ross Warren. Ross also has a very long aviation career and currently volunteers as one of our tour guides. So we, I, I got Ross and Eric together to talk to them about their common experiences with Bush Pilots Airways, BPA. This is an area that I found fascinating. It is a piece of Australian history that we can be proud of. So I began by asking Eric first and then Ross second to tell us uh, a little bit about their aviation background. Okay, I started flying in January 1966. And uh, by the end of that year, I had a unrestricted private license. And I then started studying the commercial subjects. And by the end of 67, I was leaving the country to go to New Guinea and start my flying once again in a voluntary capacity. <laughs> it was on a mission. The mission had two aircraft and they looked after their entire diocese. There were something like 14 authorised landing areas and some of them were barely landing areas, but they were, they were authorised. So only the mission could use them. And uh, so I spent uh, over a thousand hours with them came back to Australia and then finished off my commercial licence. And then shortly afterwards, in fact, it was the day man landed on the moon, I was given the job as a commercial pilot back in New Guinea. And I think the Solomon Islands were in there too, so somewhere? Well, after another three odd years in New Guinea flying commercially, I then got a job in the Solomon Islands living in Honiara. Uh, that was nearly all scheduled flying, very, very little charter. So it was a little bit different to flying in New Guinea. Uh, the ocean can be a very lonely place, especially in a little light aeroplane. We only had the small twins, Barons, 402s, Queen Air and an Islander. Uh, but you did massive hours. When there was no night flying and uh, we would go on holidays every 46 weeks. So you had six weeks a year and then after 46 weeks you're off. And every year I went out with over a thousand hours. One year it was over 1100 in that period. Mm. So you were working quite hard. Mm. Mm. So that was the Solomons, and from there I ended up with a job in Bush Pilot Airways, which is the place I think you want to hear something about. Yes, eight years. I joined in uh, in August of eighty, sorry, in seventy eight, and I left in April of eighty six to go to TAA okay. because TAA had bought our company out. Okay. Well, there's a lot of flying stories there to tell, which we aren't going to be able to get to this time. We will come back to some of them. Um, thanks for that. That's a great start. So, Ross, what about you? What's, where are you from and what's your background in aviation? I was born in uh, Ringwood, uh, Victoria, and uh, my father was in the Air Training Corps during the war. They needed more Army people, so he ended up in the Army. I always, he always had an interest in aviation. He knew Jack Hearn 
who was one of the Hearns Hobbies brothers from Korean days, used to fly Mustangs. He owned a Hornet Moth and offered to take my father flying one day and I was only a little fellow who uh, sat in the luggage compartment in the back of the Hornet Moth. I would have been under 10 at that stage, and I don't know whether I was scared or thrilled, <laughs> but from that day forward, I, uh, I had an interest in aviation. We also had, flying past our backyard, the Air Force Reserve in their Mustangs in those years, um, and you could hear them coming from miles away with the distinctive Merlin sound. Mm -hmm. uh, from there, uh, my mother won a, a prize in a DC-3 flight around Melbourne. Uh, I enjoyed that, and then a helicopter arrived for a birthday present, and then the Air Training Corps turned up. So I joined the Air Training Corps a year later than the average guy, but I loved it. And towards the end of my time, I was offered either a cadet under-officer or a flying scholarship. It didn't take long to decide which I wanted to do. So I was lucky enough to be awarded a flying scholarship, which started in December of 1966, and I obtained my unrestricted private pilot's licence in the middle of 67. Uh, National Service was on at the time. I didn't want my number to come up, probably the only lottery that I'd ever win. <laughs> and so I volunteered to join the Air Force, even though I was looking at becoming a uh, Qantas cadet pilot at that time, mm. only because uh, you still had to do a National Service even if you joined Qantas. That's two years of National Service? Two years. Mm. It was a requirement, and uh, my chances are I would have ended up in Vietnam in a mud hole mm. with the Army. So I put my hand up, and when the Air Force came back to me and said, uh, would you consider doing your training in the UK? I uh, took five seconds to answer and said, yes, show me the way. Mm. We had to do a pilot grading course. They selected um, the guys who were probably most likely to succeed in flying training. And then I went to the UK in 1968 when I joined the Australian Air Force and did my training with the RAF. Two years flying, a uh, different training system to Australia, but I ended up on fast jet training and uh, enjoyed that. And if you're uh, watching a program at the moment, uh, they've got the uh, Top Gun uh, promotions mm. for the movie and yep. also uh, the real Top Guns, which is the RAF fast jet training. Uh, plug for SBS Viceland, I think Channel 31 on free-to-air, three programs um, showing what we did. And nothing has changed since 53 years ago when I first did my flying around Snowdonia <laughs> upside down in a fallen gnat. Loved the flying, did well on course, um, was uh, posted to fighters at Williamtown, uh, which involved flying the Mackie, the Sabre and then the Mirage. Mm. After finishing the Mirage course in 71, uh, I was posted to Butterworth, Malaysia, with three squadron, where I flew for two years up there, and they were the best flying years of my life. So I started again in general aviation. I already had my commercial licence. I uh, was studying for my uh, airline pilot's licence to get into the domestic airlines. But in the mid-70s, uh, the domestics didn't recruit for two years, between 75 and 77. And so I was with the third level airline, uh, executive airlines at that stage, flying initially air ambulance and then Reg 203 flying from uh, Launceston out to the Bass Strait Islands, Flinders and King Island. Um, that uh, situation lasted um, for just over a year, but I decided I needed to progress further. Uh, Qantas were not recruiting. They didn't recruit for 13-odd years. Some of my compatriots from the Air Force uh, joined Qantas 
and spent 13 years as second officers being retrenched twice. So Qantas was not an option for me at that time. However, I did want to fly the big jets as that was my intention originally before the Air Force came up. So uh, I ended up in Darwin, which was a complete opposite to Tasmania, flying charter work until the downturn there and I was retrenched. I applied for every job that was going and one of them was with Bush Pilots. So I ended up joining them in October of 76 and stayed with them for around 10 years. So between the two of you, there's over 100 years of flying experience and a huge... Please, please don't put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're looking surprisingly well for all that. I was going to ask you, um, people come into the Queensland Air Museum, they come through Hangar 1 where the entry is, they, they come through all of that and they come out the back of Hangar 1 into the courtyard there where we have our aircraft on display in the open. One of the first things they see is the Metro liner and they see this big blue BPA on the side of the nose. What is BPA? Just give us a quick explanation of what that means. Yeah, okay. It was, was for Bush Pilot Airways. It was, if you wrote that on the side of the aircraft, you sort of ran out of paint <laughs> trying to get to the end of it. So BPA sort of covered it and everyone knew who it was. Everyone in that area knew who it was. You, you work for Bushies. That was the, the name we would normally give. The Bushies, yeah. Work for Bushies. And a lot of people down south used to think Bushies, does it mean just that? You know, you chew grass seed and all the rest of it. And that wasn't true. And I think TAA had that attitude in mind when they bought the company out. They didn't want the pilots. Yeah. I think they, they had this view, well, you know, we're Melbourne and Sydney, we're sophisticated people. But they changed the name to Air Queensland in 1980, I think it was. It could have been 81. 81, I think, yeah. Mm. And... Uh, that was because airlines were going under computers, so having you needed to be seen in a good light because someone in Melbourne has never heard of Cairns, probably, let alone of Bush Pilots. So by calling it Air Queensland, it had a more sophisticated and polished appearance. So that's when the name actually changed. But it was always fondly called, and still is by those who work for it, Bushies. I, I was doing some research about BPA and I saw that there was the suggestion that a bush pilot sounded like something like a bush lawyer or a bush carpenter, you know, or yeah. getting a bush haircut. So it, it kind of it was easy to make fun of and yet by those who didn't know what they were talking about. And yet it was performing a vital service, wasn't it, Ross, to the communities yeah. in Queensland and Northern Territory? Yes, that's right. Well, the original derivation of the bush pilots came from the Canadian version where the founder, Sir Bob Norman, did his Air Force training. And uh, when he came back, he said, we probably need something like that in the remote areas of Queensland. And he was involved in the Cairns Aero Club and also the Cairns Aerial Service. And it was on one occasion in 1951 where he had a, an emergency call to come and rescue the wife of a grazier, Bev Anning, who had a, um, a complication uh, with birth. And she was bleeding badly and uh, it was Sir Bob Norman who managed to get into a very rough, roughly quickly constructed airstrip and flew her to Huendon where she was treated. And he flew back to Reedy Springs to discuss with the Grazier the idea of setting up a service that would cover, like Canada, the Bush Pilots Airways. And this is in the early 1950s, I think? That's correct, 1951. 51. Mm -hmm. 
and and from there it it, it went on to become a, a full fully certified airline, didn't it, eventually? Oh, yeah. It was the first airline licence issued in 25 years yeah. when Bushy's got it, which is quite quite something from our department. They, yeah. they didn't hand them out. They, they were third-level airlines, and we always had held that licence, which covered the DC-3s, but we didn't have a full airline licence, and when you had the Fokker, you had to do it. And, and they, they, they performed well. There was no, there was no problem about that. Mm. When the department came and rode with us and saw the operation, they were more than happy. Well, they must have been, yeah. So my first question was, why would not the Royal Flying Doctor be the the solution to that situation you were talking about? Were they not operating there, or what was the situation? No, as far as I understand, I mean, I was only born in 1949, so I wasn't around in the early 50s to really know, but uh, as far as I know, the Royal Flying Doctor service was not operating in that part of the world. But mm. there was the Cairns Aerial Ambulance, which was supported by the Aero Club, which only had, um, I think, three Tiger Moths, two of which were in bits, and there was only one serviceable aircraft. So it was from those humble beginnings that uh, Sir Bob Norman, having had the experience of Canada, decided to start up Bush Pilots Airways. So that's where the original name came from. They abbreviated it to BPA for the reasons that uh, Eric has spoken of and also to remove that stigma of bush pilots, excuse me. Um, but um, forever and to this day, when we still have our reunions, uh, every year, one in Cairns uh, and on the alternate year in Brisbane, we have a turn-up of uh, 50-odd people for each, um, each reunion, and it was still known as Bushies. Uh, so reunions are still ha- being conducted every year. Well, there's one coming up uh, this coming month in June, June the 6th or something in Cairns this yep. year. It's quite amazing, really, when you think about how many years have passed. And, uh, you know, this, this is obviously a tight-knit community of, of, uh, of aviators, was it? Like, did, you, did it feel that way, that you were all sort in of... In Cairns it did. In Cairns it did, because the, uh, the terminal we had had a, a licensed bar at the end of it. <laughs> So the last flight of the last flights of the day, the aeroplanes would park outside and people would come in and they they would join you. Yep. So your passengers were then your drinking partners at least. Wow! And they were often the same people over and over again because yeah. of the locations they came from. They may not travel every week, but they would certainly travel fairly frequently. And you got to know them, and they got to know you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what made the, the friendliness bit of it. And there was a huge effort to always try and help people in the bush. You know, if they really needed something, you, you went out of your way because the airline, or even before it was an airline, it was the only way you could get to some of these places. And in the wet, uh, it, it was the pole places closed off. You can't move. And it's getting better and better as the years go on. But back in the early mm-hmm. stage when it started, you were asking Ross about the Flying Doctor. The roads in that part of the world then were, were near, near non-existent. They were okay. And they were dirt roads, uh, gravel maybe if you were a bit lucky in places, Uh they were okay in the dry time, but the rest of the time you were very isolated. And if, the, if you had big floods, and you often had them, uh, because the land is really so flat across that area, the river moves slowly. So if you're looking at it from the air, it can be 10 miles wide, and it just creeps along until it gets to the coast. So the whole time, all that place is closed off, totally, you know, and even, even when the water subsided, it's still very wet and soggy. So the airline or the air the aircraft was really essential and people got to really rely on it. 
And you've got cattle stations there, mining mining o- operations. You've got small communities, haven't you? You've got a mm. quite a quite a range of different people there need, having a need to be connected with civilization. Yes, well, I started off as a DC three FO come to Cessna two ten mail plane captain. Mail, okay. And we were the only people that some of those people saw uh, every two weeks. Yeah, and you would try and take in something special for them if they had a special request. There might be just some fresh vegetables, yeah, um, and or the mail, and you were greeted with with open arms. And quite often we had eight, sometimes ten sectors to do in a day in those aircraft delivering the mail, etc. And uh, you would get tied up with these graziers who hadn't seen civilization for the past two weeks and wanted to have a bit of a chat. Um, so you felt as though you were still doing the original service yes. that the airline was established for. And uh, because that was the nature of the business, also, as you mentioned, supplying the mines and also the missions with essential items, uh, you felt as though you were doing a not just a job but a service for those people. Is it correct? I heard that DC-3s would sometimes transport beers, beer and prawns, you know, <laughs> at that in, level. In big so, quantities. In big quantities. In big... <laughs> uh, the, the prawns at the prawning time, yeah. especially if the floods were up, that roads out of uh, Corumba are just closed. Yep. And you might have been able to get to Normanton. I've seen that happen where trucks could get to Normanton with frozen goods for consumption and they'd take frozen fish and prawns out. But they could not get the last twenty odd miles to Crumbin. Of course, so you you would shuttle frozen frozen fish and prawns out, and frozen vegetables and ice cream in, and wow. you just do the, do this all day long. Yeah, you know, people all around the world, many know about the RFDS, and and it's rightly internationally renowned uh, and very Australian, very successful, still operating. But so few people have heard of the Bush Pilots in my experience, and I think that's a real shame. I believe there was coastal surveillance also for the government. Was that uh, something the bush pilots did? No? No, we did. With, when we got the nomad, there was coastal surveillance. It was, it was one of the first contracts they put out, uh, and they insisted that it had to be in a nomad because it was Australian-built. Oh. Uh, it was a bit, of a bit of a joke because there were set times that they did the surveillance, so everyone who was doing things... Keep going. A little bit naughty, like putting more fishing nets across the mouth of the river than they should. They knew what time the plane was coming, so they'd be taken down. <laughs> I think you're allowed three nets, but you, it could only cover one third, and they weren't supposed to be from both sides. So the fish had two-thirds of a chance of getting away down the, down the river. But if you knew what time the planes were coming, then you wait till it went, and, then, and you could do what you like. Um, and no doubt fishing, the, the bigger boats, they were fishing in places that were partly closed off. And although most of the fishing on the bigger boats are done at night time for the prawning, uh, sailing boats were always looked at. But it, was, it, it became more serious as time went on when they worked out what you can and can't do. So coastal surveillance could be any time as time went on. And you didn't know whether they are going to see him in the morning, middle of the day or late in the afternoon. He could just be there. Okay. And uh, that, we didn't do that for very long, though. It only went on for probably a couple of years. And uh, the other people who were interested in contracting big time for it uh, took over. And, that, and they covered a much bigger area than we did. We just went from Cairns almost to Cape York and then they'd overnight in Weeper, then go back to Cape Grenville, I think it was when they started, and then back down the coast. 
But it was it was in the early stages of the uh, coastal surveillance work. Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned the Nomad. We've talked about the DC three. There were there was a wide range of aircraft used by BPA, wasn't there? Um, there were the Trilanders, which most people can still hear in their ears. <laughs> it, it really was a flying cash register. <laughs> it, it, there was a pilot and seventeen passengers, and up to two hundred and twenty nautical miles, it was half a DC three. After that, the DC three won because of not only what it carried, it carried more fuel, uh, but on a short run, you know, like uh, Cairns to Townsville or Cairns to Cooktown, full full loaded Trilander was as good as a DC three. Okay, and uh, it was uh, only the one crew, and the uh, consumption rate, fuel wise, was very good, and it was a low maintenance aircraft. There, there was nothing much except for the flaps that moved on it and that they were electric, and the undercarriage was fixed. But it did do a good job, and uh, the company was good in so much that they put headphones for the passengers beside each seat. And we did a lot of tours, where you would go out of Cairns, for example, and, and when Ross was in Townsville, he did the same tours up the coast from Townsville to Dunk Island and back again. And so you could talk to everyone about what they were looking at. And they were very popular. So sometimes that was just being a passenger at Townsville to Dunk, uh, but you could point out what was there. In our case, in Cairns, we took people on a day tour, which went to Cairns, up the coast, to Cooktown, morning tea in Cooktown, the lovely museum there, and then from up, from there to Lizard Island, have lunch there. And then in the afternoon, after they had a swim and a ride in the glass-bottom boat, we would take them via the outer reef back down to Cairns. Mm. It was a long day, but uh, you know, my wife used to say, anyone that takes their swimmers in their towel with them is not having a hard day. <laughs> So, Ross, as a complete civilian that I am, um, I realise that people have to be rated on different airframes and they have to be able to, uh, to operate different aircraft uh, in an organisation like this. Did you, did you fly multiple aircraft or did you have your particular plane? Uh, yes, we did. Um, <clears throat> uh, as I said, we flew the DC-3 and the Cessna 210. That was allowed by the Civil Aviation Department uh, at the time. Um, later on, I flew the Cessna 402 and the Trilander uh, at the same time. But once we moved into the turboprop, it was the Metro only and nothing else to be flown with that. Uh, same with the Twin Otter, because the differences in the aircraft were so great that mm. uh, it was not safe to be flying two different types of aircraft. Ross was saying how important the station runs were. And I started like Ross as the first officer on DC-3s and you flew the 210. And some of the runs were very long, some of them weren't so long. Uh, some of them were three days. There was one where you went away, uh, you flew over to Normanton, and you did all that west coast up to Kawanyama and back down again to Normanton, and then from there to Mount Isa. That was the first day. Wow. And the next day you'd fly out of Isa uh, up towards Lawn Hill and then around through Domaji and all the stations around as far as Kenobi, Ifley, and back into Concurry and to Isa. The next week it was done in reverse. So that was a full day as well. And I didn't mention anywhere near the number of stations that you stopped at. Mm. And then on the third day, you then went from Isa back through um, Dumaji, the Aboriginal community, over to Burketown, to Karumba, Normanton at home. That was an easy day. So that was three days away. Um, and that was, uh, by the time you got home, you were quite happy to be home. And in the summertime, when it's hot, you never got out of the turbulence because it was just, mm. you, you, the distances weren't great enough to climb up and get out. So you're b bouncing around the uh, around the sky all all the time. Wintertime was much nicer, but uh, 
you two had to take whatever, whatever uh, day or week it was rostered, I suppose. But uh, the station runs I found rewarding. It was hard work, uh, but the people, as Ross said, were always happy to see you. They want to have a bit of a yarn. And, uh, you know, you took their kids to school. Often they went to boarding school and you brought them home at holiday time. Uh, it, it was nice just to see it, that you were doing, you weren't just doing a job. You're doing something that was needed. Uh, station runs, I was just going to mention, I, ha I had a few incidents, the DC-3, occasionally it was getting harder to have the engine service, so occasionally you'd have to uh, shut down on the DC-3s. Uh, but I was going to mention with the Cessna 210 flying, it was all seat of the pants, visual navigation through all sorts of weather. Mm. Um, so it was quite demanding flying to, to achieve the result. And only on one occasion did I have a problem with it, and I was leaving Corumba for Normanton on the run back to Cairns. It was getting to the afternoon. I was flying to the east, so the sun was behind. As soon as I turned around to land at Normanton into the west, uh, I couldn't see through the windscreen because it was covered in oil. So my engine was about to fail, and there's only crocodile country between Corumba and Normanton. So that was a close shave for me. Um, but otherwise... What was the, the outcome of that flight, though? How did, what happened? Well, I was able to land. There was enough oil for me to land, and then they had to uh, change the engine as such because they weren't sure whether damage had been done. So it occurs to me you're in such remote locations. Something like that happens and an engine needs to be repaired or replaced. You're stuck there, aren't you? We are stuck there, but that's where the DC-3 came into its own again. It had the capacity to uh, and the capability to bring something like that out there. Mm. And uh, that's how they achieved those sorts of repairs. I'm not sure whether they ever took a DC-3 engine in a DC-3 for another DC-3, whether it ever got to that stage. Usually... I, I didn't see um, that happen, not no. with bushies. I did with... TAA in New Guinea where they mm. blew an engine in the mountains mm. and they had to fly a new one in. Mm. So they did fit, mm. it, but they were that was TAA and they, they had everything ready for that sort of thing to happen. Mm. They had cradles made up so you could fit them with these. But, yeah, they, they fitted, but I'm not sure whether, as Ross no. said, that we ever did it in bushes. No. The 210 that Ross just mentioned so lovingly caused a few people a little bit of grief. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, doing a, a, a trip one day. Uh, it was... From Cairns out to Chiligo to Rotham Park, and then a lot of stations around that region, sort of middle of the, of the Cape York area. And when I got to Rotham Park, they said, Oh, can you call back in here this afternoon? There's a refrigeration mechanic here. He needs to get back to Mariba. His wife's just been admitted to hospital. So I said, Yeah, sure, I'll pick him up, which I did. Now, it was normally Rotham Park back to Cairns, but because his wife was at Mariba, and you know, she was obviously in hospital for a good reason. Mariba had a good airstrip, although we normally didn't go there and it wasn't on the schedule. I said, look, I'll take you to Mariba. So I get to Mariba and I go to select the gear. Nothing happened. I thought, oh, this is good. So I did everything possible as far as the pilot was concerned. So I called up on the radio to the engineers in Cairns and they said, have you done this, this, this? I said, yes, everything's done. Have you got, I said, have you got any other thoughts about what we could do? Because none of the gear moved, none of the doors, none of the wheels. It just locks all of them. And they said, no, we can't help you. So I then had to fly to Cairns because that's where our base was. And uh, I advised the tower what the predicament was. And I said, do you have any jets that are coming? Because if I land on the strip and close the runway, the jets are then going to divert back to Townsville. And that upsets a, a lot of, a, the schedule, at least, of a lot of people. 
Mm. So the two jets, Anzhet and TIA, uh, both came in while I sat off the coast. And then we came in and landed with no wheels. It was a short landing, but no one got bruised. Wow. Everyone got minimum damage. Wow. The beautiful part about it was they sent the pump, the hydraulic pump, away for, for an overhaul. By this stage, it's in the hangar, and they put it back in, and they, it's up on the jacks. They go to test the system. Still didn't work. That's... I, really, I really felt good about that. That's <laughs> proved beyond doubt it wasn't Yes, me. it wasn't your fault. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the Cessna 210 wasn't really designed for the rough strip work. Um, it's a retractable gear aeroplane, um, but it was designed for American paved surfaces. So mm. it did get a lot of uh, knocking around um, in, in the work that it did. So you, you, you obviously had to be proficient with some maintenance and some repairs when you're out in a remote place. Is that right? Like even what, So yeah. what sort of things would you have had to do? Well, a lot of my background was in New Guinea to start with when you not only flew, you also worked with engineers doing the, the maintenance. You didn't do the heavy stuff, or if you did, you did it under their supervision and they'd take a look at it and then sign it off if, it, if all was okay. And uh, um, so that, that held me in good stead. So when I went and worked commercially, if you're in remote areas, you had an idea of what was required or what you could or couldn't do or shouldn't do, and it, which was uh, I found very helpful. And uh, although it, so, what sort of things are we talking about? Well, that... one day, for example, uh, we're at Edward River, which is now called Pomperal. It's uh, north of Kawanyama on the west coast of the Cape, as you go up towards uh, Arakoon. And uh, we were losing a lot of oil out of one engine, mm. and we could see where it was coming from. And there was a chap there who had an engineering background. He, he worked on the on the government station or the Aboriginal station, and we asked him if he would lend us a few tools. Well, certainly, certainly. So we took the cows off this DC-3, the captain and I, and uh, and this captain had also been in New Guinea and was very au fait with working with tools and engines. And we, it was a, uh, the, one of the covers that covered the push rods for the valves had, was actually ca- had come loose and the oil was just under pressure, was just coming out in a fairly large degree. So we got to and, and tightened it all up and put new lock wire on and locked it properly. And then ran the, <coughs> me, ran the engine and uh, no more oil came. The only thing I ever regretted was that the cabin attendant took a photograph. I was, we were stripped of the waste and the heat. And I thought if the department ever get to see this with the cowls off and the two pilots sitting up on top of it, they would not be very happy. But it got us out of a problem. I mean, we could see what the problem was. We knew, both knew how to put lock wire on properly. Uh, we did it and did the rest of the flight okay. And uh, that that's that sort of thing was um, mm. not totally uncommon. Mm. Ross, did you have any experiences like no, that? No, we, we didn't uh, attend to that side of it. Um, basically, if you had to do uh, an overnight, the next day you would do your daily inspection, which is, is required of just about every aircraft, checking the oil and cows and, uh, and whatever. Um, DC-3-wise, the only outstation... Uh, that I recall was one time when the DC-3 uh, starter motor failed and we had to use a Land Rover and some rope mm. to swing the prop to get the engine started. <laughs> uh, but as far as ongoing maintenance, no, um, it was all done by uh, Cairns. You know, it strikes me there's a certain amount of pride in being, say, a bush carpenter or somebody who has to you know, improvise, use their wits, do something because there's no other resources available. It's not necessarily a derogatory term, is it? And 
you know, you fellas were had to be you had to be on your ball. You had to had to have your wits about you and uh, sometimes improvise. So I guess that's something to be proud of. Would it be? Well, I never felt it was anything to be ashamed of. Yeah. Mm. Put it that way. Mm. Uh, there, there, there were the technical side of, of with the department. There would be some things that you did that they would not have liked, although for no good reason other than it was in the book. Mm. And there was nothing that we did that that made it or even susceptible to being dangerous. Uh, I mean, there's. I'll give an example of how far they went in, in, in their extremes. I hit a, um, a an eagle, a small kite hawk type one, on landing at Rockhampton one day. He just about missed it, but he just caught the tip of the propeller. And uh, I told the tower, I said, oh, there's probably a bird on the threshold. And the groundsman, the groundsman went down and picked up the bird and he brought it down to show us. Now, it just nicked him down the sternum. There was no loss of feathers. There was nothing. It, the impact killed him instantly. So I got, had a good look at the engine, the propellers, and all the rest of it, and uh, there was no part of the bird missing, so that there was nothing in the intake. So any time you had a bird strike, you had to report it, which I did. And a few days later, I got called in and said, "Oh, Eric, that uh, bird strike report you put in, uh, you did the wrong thing." I said, "What did I do wrong?" They said, "You should have called an engineer, and an engineer would have to fly up from Brisbane mm. to look at the propeller." And I said, please tell me, what can the engineer see with his naked eye that I can't see with the tip of a propeller if there's any damage? Oh, he said, that's not the point. It's why it's written. So <laughs> you, you're really fighting heavy bureaucracy when you do that. I mean, if you were x-raying the thing and you had that sort of machinery, that's fine. But the engineer's doing a visual inspection. So that, they were the sorts of things you, you felt you could do quite competently. And uh, there was no problem with the propeller. It was just a, the merest touch as, as it rotated mm. and hit the bird. Hmm. Now, look, I, I'm aware that I may have missed something really important. We've got about five or ten minutes left. Is there something about the Bush Pilots Association that you really want to say that, that I've missed? Um, it's not known as an association as such. It's Sorry. just former Bush staff Pilot. members of Bush Pilots, um, Air Queensland. Um, the Probably... I think it's because of the family atmosphere that Eric spoke of before regarding the after work engagement. Uh, so we've stayed in touch over the years, followed each other's careers. Um, we're losing a few people now as time has moved on, as the airline was wound up in 1988. But 30 odd years later, we've still got quite a good turnout. And we, we discuss the old times and we discuss uh, what's happened since then. So. It is rather unique. I would compare it with some of the Air Force experiences that I have and that I've just met just the other day at a memorial where um, there were fellows I haven't seen for 50 years and it was like yesterday. So it's a sort of mm. family atmosphere, the camaraderie that was established at the time that has kept the former staff members together. I think when Bushies closed, there was 101 pilots there was 360-odd staff total. There was a big base in Brisbane as well at that stage. But the Cairns one was always, I think, something's a bit special. So in 1988, this family of, uh, of uh, colleagues and, and uh, people who worked together suddenly all had to go in different directions to find a new, a new start, didn't they? Well, not all of them. I think there were 68 pilots went into TAA and 64 mm -hmm. passed, which was a heck of a good record, especially when... TAA didn't want us at all. It was, it was a pretty good record. Mm -hmm. It was only after 1989 and the pilots dispute that 
that we then split up and went all over the world. Okay. Uh, which was another sad, sad part of the, the history, I suppose. Uh, but still, I caught up with a guy only a couple of months ago I hadn't seen since 1989. And it was just good to talk to him. What's, you know, where are your kids? What's your wife doing, etc. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating part of Australian history and aviation history as well. And uh, it's something that I... Uh, much, greatly appreciate hearing from you because I didn't know very much about it, I, I must confess. Well, thank you, Ross. Thank you, Eric. But thank you so much for talking and uh, let's uh, continue with some of those stories later on. It's been good to see you today. Thank you. Thank you kindly. Thank you, Eric. So that's our episode. Thanks very much to Eric Cooper and Ross Warren for taking the time to talk with me. We have a special BPA display at uh, the Queensland Air Museum in Hangar 1 and that's constantly being developed. There are some new uh, elements to be added to that very soon including recordings um, taken over the years with uh, with bushies talking about their experiences but if you get to the Queensland Air Museum make sure you ask if you don't know how to find it but it's in Hangar 1 the BPA Bush Pilot Airways display. Next week you're going to hear from another volunteer at the Queensland Air Museum and another former Air Force pilot, uh, Tony Johnstone. Now you may recall a couple of weeks ago I spoke with Gordon Johnstone who uh, explained or described to us his experiences of being on board the P-3B Orion number 296 which crashed crashed on landing when it was going through its trials before delivery to the RAAF at uh, Moffat Air at Moffat Naval Air Station in California. Well, you're going to hear next week from Tony, his son. Tony also volunteers at the QAM and uh, has a long and very interesting career in aviation to talk about in both fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft. Tony. Always, his philosophy, as he told me, was that his pilot's license for him was a license to learn. And all throughout his career, he took on new challenges uh, and new experiences so that he could continue to learn throughout a very long and very active flying career. Don't forget, we're open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. And we would love to meet you. So come in and say good day. And uh, we would love to show you around our wonderful and unique collection, the largest and most diverse collection of aircraft in Australia. Thank you for listening. My name's Gary Hills. I'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>